sisters, I got here and realized that I'd left an important aspect of my lesson at home at about 9.51, which would happen to be my scriptures. So we're, uh, I ran home and got them, but there's a little bit of a race going on. Anyway, thank you for your patience. And welcome this morning. Um, as mentioned, we're going to be studying Ether, chapters 7 through 15 in the Book of Mormon. I'm excited to be here with you all today. I'm glad you're here. I wanted to start with a question. I want you to, um, to um, look at the two questions. You can pick either. And I want you to find a neighbor or someone near you, and I want you to discuss it. Question number one, what are the most important lessons you have learned in your life? Okay, that's the first one. And then skipping down after the break, the other option is, what are the most significant personal changes you've experienced in this life? Okay, and then we'll get back to the questions that follow each of them. But if you will find a partner or neighbor near you, and if you're listening to the podcast in the future, you just can think about your own answer. But again, either answer the question to your neighbor, what are the most important lessons you have learned in life, or what are the most significant personal changes you have experienced? Okay, find a neighbor, ready, set, go. Okay, 30 more seconds and then we'll switch person. Okay, go ahead and switch if you haven't already so the other person gets a chance to talk. And if you've already done both of you, answer the other question that you didn't already answer. Okay, 30 more seconds. All right, start winding down. We're going to move forward. I hope that was interesting to you. 
and a hush fell over the crowd. Close, closer, perfect. I hope that that was interesting to you, uh, both to reflect on your own life and the lessons you have learned or the changes you have experienced and to hear about a neighbor. Now I want you to consider, um, and if you didn't already, you might have already, but I want you to now to consider in the context of those important lessons, or as the slide says for those who listen later, what are the most important lessons you have learned in life and how, in what context did you learn them? Or what are the most significant personal changes you've experienced in this life and what circumstances caused or occasioned them? You can ponder on that. I'm just, this time we're going to, in silence for just a second, but if you will consider now that second half of each of those sets of questions, for the lesson you shared or the change you experienced, what was it that, that caused it? Think about it for just a second. What time of life, what thing that was going on, what, what character's trait, what experience taught you those most important lessons? And hold on to that in your head. And we'll come back to it at the end of the lesson. You got it? Everybody got it? What taught you those lessons? Turning now with that in your minds, um, and I hope, I, hope you do, I hope you do think about it. Does anyone need more time to think about it? Okay, think about it a second longer while I look at my scriptures. All right. Today, like I said, we're studying, starting in, well, studying Ether chapter 7 through 15, the second half of the book of Ether. This follows on the lesson that was given by Cynthia two weeks ago on the first six chapters, Ether 1 through 6, which was a story of the beginning of the Jaredite people, and they're leaving Babel, crossing the sea, and coming to the promised land and establishing their society. Starting in Ether chapter 7, and this is, of course, Moroni bridging the plates that were found by the people of Limhi. Um, starting in, in chapter 7, we get a flyby of Jaredite history. We see the rise and fall of kings, of prophets. We see wars and peace, destructions, rebuildings, and the rise and ultimate triumph of secret combinations. We see the cycles of Nephite history repeated. It's the same story, and lamentably, it has the same ending, complete annihilation of a people. The similarities are not last on Moroni. Cynthia mentioned the, the similarities between Ether and Moroni. They become an, the last surviving prophet of their people. They become the remaining righteous when all else have gone wicked. And they both live in seclusion and hiding as a record the, the, the destruction of their people. And so Sim, Moroni, we, you, know, you can imagine him feeling a kinship to Ether a soulmate he finds in Ether, as someone who's going through the same thing he had to go through hundreds of years before he did. And, and the similarities between the peoples are also not lost on Moroni. He highlights them. In fact, the one point he slows down in this flyby that he does, or one of the points he slows down, is to show the introduction of secret combinations, the same thing that killed his people. In this sense, the Jaredite record becomes a second witness of the message of the Book of Mormon. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all words be established. 
in the middle of it all. Um, and so as I prepared this lesson, I looked at Ether 7 through 15, I thought, well, we've had a lesson on every single thing in here. Why? Because it's the same story all over again. We've had lessons on synchro combinations. We've had lessons on the need to follow the prophet. We've had lessons on the cycles between prosperity and pride. And all of these things, all the same things that brought down the same people, this, this people that brought down, also brought down the Nephites. And in the middle of it all, though, as I mentioned in a lesson a few weeks ago, the one on trial of faith, um, there's this great sermon that is given. It is started by Moroni quoting or, or um, uh, repeating, abridging um, Ether's words, the prophet Ether. And it ends with Moroni himself inserting his own thoughts on the same into the, into the um, message. So as I looked over all of these, what is that? nine chapters of scripture. I decided we'd had enough of secret combination talk and wickedness in the last days and all of those messages, though they are so relevant. And I wanted to focus on chapter 12. So if you'll turn there, that's where we'll spend our time today. Chapter 12, as I mentioned, is a prophet, Ether exhorting his people and then Moroni in verse six, interjecting as we, as we talked before and that he will speak somewhat concerning these things. He talks about faith and the trial of our faith. We talked about that three weeks ago in this class, and we won't, so we will not cover that today. He talks also about faith, hope, and charity, which is also covered later by Moroni in Moroni chapter seven. So I'm leaving that one up to Cynthia Williams, no pressure. Today, in chapter 12, however, I have chosen to focus the entire lesson, or at least 90% of it, depending on our time, on a single verse. Perhaps you can guess which one it is. It is one of the most quoted and most favorited verses of all of the Book of Mormon. Which one is it? Ether 12, 27. Um, that is where we will focus our time today. And of course, it says this. And if men come unto me, I will show unto men their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, I will make weak things become strong unto them. We're going to cover the whole, the whole verse. Um, one commentator said that this is one of the most magnificent, magnificent examples of a single verse sermon. And I agree with him. I have 11 pages on Ether 12, 27. So we will see how far we get. So starting at the beginning, a very good place to start. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Now we need to start by defining what we mean by weakness, because weakness is going to show up a whole lot during this lesson, as you can imagine. Some commentators, some that I've, some professors I've heard um, and others have pointed out that in this scripture, weakness is, is given in its singular form and have proposed that perhaps then that the scripture refers to weakness as in mortality, that we are born into a weak state occasioned by our mortality. And that is what the scripture um, is referring to. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, I found this quote while preparing and I thought it was interesting. He actually does include both senses of weakness. And so if you listen, he says, when we read the scripture, scriptures of man's quote, weakness, unquote, this term includes the generic but necessary weakness inherent, those are all important words for our lesson today, in the general human condition in which the flesh has such an incessant impact upon the spirit. 
Weakness likewise includes, however, our specific individual weaknesses, which we are expected to overcome. Life has a way of exposing these weaknesses. Have you experienced that? So, per Elder Maxwell, for our lesson, the purposes of our lesson today, when in the Ether 1227, we see that word weakness. We are going to be talking about both the condition of human frailty and imperfection that is inherent in our mortal celestial condition, in the condition into which we are born, as well as our individual specific weaknesses that, that are personal to us. And of course, those weaknesses, as we well know, can span a very large spectrum. Um, uh, physical disease, uh, some, some examples, this is not an exhaustive list as you will have experienced in your own life. Physical disease, emotional illness such as depress depression, attention deficit, bipolar, anxiety, susceptibility to temptations, predispositions we are born with including everything from addiction, same gender attraction, and obesity to intelligence. There are actually quotes that I brought today that talk about um, intelligence and other what we would see as blessings actually being a, a, a trial. Um, so intelligence, extroversion, and musical aptitude. Uh, and, and the note again that seeming strengths can create problems. Weaknesses may include suffering that come from being traumatized, abandoned, neglected, or betrayed, susceptibility to loss and grief because of our own impending death or the death of those we love, certain emotions such as sadness, grief, shame, anger, impatience, worry, jealousness, uh, jealousy, and guilt, as well as pleasure, excitement, relaxation, and satisfaction, which in their extremes can be taken to anxiety, laziness, addiction, and hedonism. Deficits we have experienced because of our upbringing, culture, or other factors. The limitations that we feel on our time, on our energy, our experience, our skills, our knowledge, our emotional capacities, the limitations on how much we know at the present moment. There are a lot of weaknesses and so many others. So when we talk about weaknesses today, we're talking about that full spectrum. All of our weaknesses, the range of human weaknesses, both general and specific. And we're going to learn a little bit about what Christ, what God thinks about weaknesses and what he and we, together with him, can do about them. But first, a question from this first line. Note, and if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And again, weakness in, with that broad spec spectrum. See, notice the if-then. If you do this thing, come unto me, then what? I'm going to show your weaknesses. Is this an annoying friend? <laughs> or maybe just incessant constructive criticism? I thought we were supposed to come unto him. I thought when we did, we felt better. I thought that was the right thing. I thought that was the good thing. So why does he make it uncomfortable? Well, does he? Uh, when I think about this phrase, I, I do not think that God is either annoying friend or trying to hurt or maim us, but I do think it is true that as we come unto him that our weaknesses will be displayed to us. In my mind, I like to think about the vision of the tree of life when I think about this particular phrase. Tell me about the tree of life. Give me words that described it in the dream, in Lehi's dream. Delicious. Any others? Bright. Any others? Desirable. Precious. 
It was the goal. It is what we expect when we come into him. Desirable, delicious, precious. And it is also in his dream, not just white and not even just bright, although those are both accurate. It is the most brilliantly white thing that Lehi has ever seen. Do you agree? Do you remember? Let's actually read it so you think I'm not making things. You don't think I'm making things up. First Nephi chapter 8. Um, it was most sweet above all that I'd ever before tasted. That's the fruit. Yea, I beheld the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. The whitest thing he'd ever seen. So as you walk to this tree and you start in the great and spacious, not building, but the field that represents the world, and you're walking through mists of darkness, what happens as you walk towards an exceedingly bright and white tree? Do you see better or worse? Can you picture that in your mind? That as we walk towards Christ, who is the tree of life, that everything around us in our lives and the light that is shining on us becomes brighter. And what happens when the light on you becomes brighter? By natural consequence, you see more clearly. Sin and weakness hate the light. We don't like to be seen. Sin hates it because it likes to hide in dark. Guilt and shame. They like darkness. They don't like to be seen. Um, but as we walk into the light of the Lord and walk towards the tree of life, we see selves, ourselves, and others, I would add, and him, which is the point, more clearly as we are in enveloped in his light. But as I mentioned just a second ago, this can be rather uncomfortable. Even if it is not a blatant, annoying friend, constructive criticism, here are your faults. Nevertheless, being able to see ourselves more clearly, even if it is just natural consequence of coming into the light of the world, can make us a little uncomfortable. Because as I mentioned, sins and also our weaknesses, both of them, feel a little more comfortable in the dark. Um, I was listening to a lecture recently by a woman, I, I believe her name is Catherine Thomas, a scholar in the church. She was reading, talking about temple symbolism in the book of Hebrews. And she made this point about five minutes into the lecture. She said that the children of Israel in their time, they chose intermediaries. They wanted, they had the opportunity. Moses invited them to see the face of God, but they said, no, Moses, you just take care of that for us. We'd rather have you between us and, and God. And I, I listened to that point and I just couldn't move on. I, I had to pause it. And I thought about it for a little while thinking, well, maybe there's something here. And I tried to go on. I couldn't go on. So I rewound at the beginning of the talk, listened again to the same five minutes, got to the same point, and couldn't move on. I was like, apparently there is something to be known here that I'm not yet knowing. And so I thought about it a little bit more. And I wondered, why did the children of Israel want an intermediary? Given the opportunity to see the face of God, why would they choose something other? It was it the effort to get up to the top of the Mount Sinai? Was it worry about what he might require once they did see him? Was it worry about what they might see or that they might be seen that caused them to want Moses to go in their stead? And then I got thinking a little bit more about myself. Are there ways in my life that I don't want to either see or be seen by the face of God? Do I somehow myself hide? And if so, why? Something interesting to contemplate in our own lives. Something that I think, well, and I'll leave that there. Something to contemplate.
So sometimes we don't want to see, perhaps because either we don't want to see or be seen by God. That's that idea. Something, like I said, just to think about. I don't have a direct answer today. But sometimes I think we don't want to see ourselves either. I brought this today. This is my roommate's. You probably know what this is. This is a lighted magnification mirror. So I'm in choir the other day, and I have failed to put on my makeup before I go on national TV. And so I'm like, this is a problem I've got to remedy immediately. So I'm like asking around, does anyone have a mirror? Because cameras are going to roll here pretty soon. I've got to do some fixing. And my dear friend, Karma, who sits just to my, was sitting just to my left that day, she's like, yeah, I have a mirror. She just pulled it out. She goes, oh, but it's a magnification mirror. And I'm like, hey, I'll take anything at this point. Just, you know, I'll take it. Great, thanks. And I hold the thing up and I think, why does anyone want this type of mirror in their life? I don't want it. I don't want to see every pore, every threatening wrinkle, every potential girl. I don't want any of this. In fact, I like to do my makeup by doing it and then standing back a little bit, slightly crossing my eyes to blur my vision. And yeah, that looks good, Becca. And I think that that's how sometimes, well, it's easier, right? It's easier not to see the imperfections. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 that sometimes that in this life we see through a glass, and the translation of that word glass from the Greek can also be mirror. We see through a mirror darkly. We see obscured. We don't see things quite as they are. And that can cause a problem because then we don't see life or other, ourselves or others or God how they are. And a false idea of any of those things can weaken faith. But sometimes it's also a little more comfortable to not not see things as they are, right? To kind of ostrich ourselves in the sand a little bit and uh, feel a little more comfortable. Uh, Elder Maxwell has a quote on this, and hopefully I can find it quickly. This is, he says this, because God wants us to come home after having become more like him and his son, part of this developmental process of necessity consists of showing unto us our weaknesses. Hence, if we have ultimate hope, we will be submissive, because with his help, those weaknesses can even can even become strengths. It is not an easy thing, however, to be shown one's weaknesses, as these are regularly demonstrated by life's circumstances. Amen. Nevertheless, this is part of coming unto Christ, and it is a vital, if painful, part of God's plan of happiness. Besides, as Elder Henry B. Eyring has wisely observed, if you want praise more than instruction, you may get neither. And so sometimes, in fact, all times, if we truly want to come into Christ, if we truly want to be better, we have to be willing to see. In this case, ignorance is not bliss, and ostrich heads in the sand do not serve us. Um, I had a friend whose mother passed away, and, and in the wake of her passing, she wrote um, several beautiful blog posts about her mom. The one that has stuck with me over the years was her mentioning how her mom insisted on having a completely white bathroom. Everything white. Tile, fixtures, white. And how this drove the children crazy because they had to clean said bathroom. And that is tough. And this friend mentioned how... At, in thinking about it after her mother's death, she realized that the, the reason her mom wanted that white bathroom is for that exact reason, that she didn't want dirt, that she didn't want stain. And so she was going to create a space where it was evident, so it could be addressed. So it is with us and our weaknesses. If we are not willing to see them, they can 
cannot be fully addressed. We have, just like with sin, that first step is to recognize, so it may be with our weakness. Um, and perhaps not everyone. Perhaps some, as we go through life, though we do not say, I am bad at this, it can still be remedied. But there is benefit in being able to see. Otherwise, why would we see them? And in fact, I, Ether chapter 12, verse 37, halfway through the verse, this is the Lord now speaking to Moroni, who's concerned about his own weakness, um, which is also what occasioned verse 27. He says, and because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong. Because thou hast been willing to see, then you can address it. Incidentally, it is verses 36 through 38, um, out of which we just read a portion that Hiram read while in Carthage jail shortly before he and his brother Joseph were martyred. I have another uh, friend, acquaintance, that... Um, mentioned that when she went to the MTC, she felt like all of a sudden she was the worst person in the world. And she's like, how, did, how, how am I so horrible? And she felt really badly about how she was feeling, like that she wasn't a very good missionary or person or whatever it particularly was. And she said for her, this particular verse came to mind, that if you come unto me, I will show unto you your weakness. And she realized that her experience of being in the MTC, of walking in the light, of walking towards the light, of immersing herself in the scriptures, and seeing in them the standard that is set by the Son of God, was only highlighting to her the gap but that that gap was part of coming unto him and that she was actually coming unto Christ and living on a higher level and in that sense seeing our weaknesses at times well can be a good sign depending on what we do with it so that again that first line if men come unto me I will show unto them their weakness next I give unto men weakness that they may be humble reading this line alone Per, per the scripture, who gives unto us our weakness? Say it again. What does it say? Yeah. Well, that sounds weird. Elder Hartman Rector Jr., General Conference, April 1970. Where do you suppose we get these weaknesses? If you pose this question to a group of saints, it will astound you how many different answers you get to this particular question. Some will say they are responsible for their own weaknesses. Well, if you keep your weaknesses, if you stay as you are, that's true, but it's not where they come from. Another will say weaknesses come from heredity or environment. In either instance, we are passing responsibility to someone else, either our parents or our neighborhood. Both of these sources have a great influence upon us, but they do not give us our weaknesses. Still another may blame Lucifer, the devil, for their weaknesses, for surely he is always on the job. But this is not where we get our weaknesses either. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Where do they really come from? The Lord tells us the answer, answer to this question very plainly in the Book of Mormon. So where do we get our weaknesses? We get them from the Lord. The Lord gives us weakness so we will be humble. This makes us teachable. Now don't misunderstand me. The Lord is not responsible for the sin. He is only responsible for the weakness. It seems that all men must have weaknesses of one form or another, characters traits that makes one more subject to a particular temptation than another. Giving us weaknesses, however, is not the Lord's way of getting our attention. He says, Oh, sorry, giving us weaknesses, however, is one of the Lord's way of getting our attention. He says that this is the means he uses to make us humble, but he also says that if we will come unto him and have faith in him, he will make us strong wherein we are weak. I know this is truth. 
Is that interesting? Is that surprising? Do we think about it that way? Does God, God have a hand in giving us our weaknesses? I think about, um, as a child, I have this particular memory burned into my head. I don't know if it's where it fits in the lesson, but it came to mind. Um, I was about five, and I remember my dad sitting my, me down in my room and talking to me about how crayons are to be used because I didn't want the crayon chips to ever be less than how they were, which was perfectly conical with that flat top on the very tip. I loved them like that. So I would use the bottoms because then I could put them in the box and you would never know. And my dad was like, Becca, this is not what crayons are for. You will use the tops of your crayons. And I have ever since. But it was interesting to me that age four or five, I had that propensity. And I have seen some related qualities in different aspects of my life since then. But these weaknesses that, that we are given, it is important, as, as um, was said in the quote, that we realize they are given to us as a test, an opportunity, a reason to come unto God. And they are n um, not an invitation to sin. Um, God does not give us our sins. And then we get, so that brings us to a really important point. What is the difference between weakness and sin? And here I will be pulling a lot from this book by Wendy Ulrich, if you haven't read it, and I don't, so I don't want to take credit for her ideas. So that is where the next few slides definitely come from. What is the difference between weakness and sin? We're only on page two of 11. We're in real trouble. Um, so let's start with some definitions. Definition of sin, and there are obviously many. Here is one. A sin is a state of rebellion against God. A state of rebellion against the light of God. By contrast, what is weakness? Weakness is a state occasioned by the inherent deficits in the mortal body. It is human mortal limitation. And that distinction is important. Why? Because it is important for us to understand. And if you leave with nothing else today, this would be one of my options. Weakness is not sin. Let's look more into this. What is the difference? Um, we'll go on. There's more to be said, but we'll go forward. Um, we, sin is a willful rebellion against God and his light. Sin, as, whereas weakness, as I mentioned, is human limitation, it is the mortal condition, and it is inherent and given of God. Sin is created by our choice, by our use of agency to turn away from God, to turn away from his promptings, whether to do right or to do wrong, and to do something else. It is our choice to be educated by Satan or by ourselves on what will make us happy about what is right and what is true, and to follow those inclinations instead of what God is telling us about those same things. It is a choice, whereas weakness is a state of being. We are formed of the elements of the earth. We are shaped by telestial circumstances and experiences, and we are subject to temptation, sickness, injury, fatigue, and death. 
We experience out of this general state of human weakness specific individual weaknesses, which may include variation in our physical or mental well-being, vulnerability to certain desires and passions, predispositions to various emotional and physical states, different levels of talents and abilities, limited resources, all of these attributes come from the territory of being in a telestial world in a telestial mortal body. So whereas sin is a choice by our agency to rebel against God and his light, whether to do good or evil, or, or whether to, for him saying us not to do evil or to do more good, weakness is a state of being. It is mortality. It is human frailty. Sin is authored by Satan. And it is part of his objective and his plan. Weakness is authored by God, as we just saw, and it is part of his plan. The result of sin is to stop our progress, to alienate us from the spirit. By contrast, weakness does not have to have these effects. In fact, weakness can be a catalyst of our progress and allows the spirit to still be with us, regardless of our weakness. Again, depending on how we respond to it. Sin can be eliminated in this life through repentance. Every time we sin, we can repent. Weakness will not be completely eliminated in this life. But we continue to strive. And as Elder McConkie said in the probationary test of men's of mortality, that as we are on that path, even as we die and are on that path, we will continue until grace by grace we are perfected. How do you know the difference in your life between sin and weakness. <laughs> this is the million dollar question. How do you know? Can you think of anything that would indicate to you? Any ways, any tests, any things you can do? How you feel? Yeah, thank you. The spirit will help indicate to us which one it is. I, for me, as, I an, as you analyze yourself, your actions, why you did or didn't something, if you're really brutally honest with yourself, was there rebellion in it? Was there intent to go against the will of God? Was there an intent to turn from light, whether because of a temptation of Satan or our own carnal desires, our own, our own what we want? Um, the spirit can indicate to us the difference. And... And we can also ask. That's the promise of the line we studied a second ago, that if we come unto him, this time asking, he will show us our weaknesses. And it may take time, and it may, ask, it may take asking. But the key, again, is turning away from the light, knowledge, and God that is inherent in sin. Now, this does depend on the light that we have, right? We have to know right from wrong in order to sin, and the condition or intent of our hearts when we do it. Even if it was wrong, and even if we should have known it was wrong, but we didn't realize it at the time, and our intent was to do right, well, that's slightly different than intending to do wrong, knowing what that it is. Sin is a state of rebellion, again, um, and can only be known in our own heart and by the Spirit. Meaning we can't judge another. You can't even look at somebody and say, that was really wrong what they did. You can't know fully. Um, how much of that was sin? We cannot judge each other. In fact, in choir, we have this rule that you are not allowed to correct each other. Like, verboten, do not correct each other. So sometimes people will do this. 
it's kind of slyly look over their shoulder. You're like, okay, I got it. <laughs> but there's this idea that we aren't here to judge each other and we can't know. So let us not correct each other while we are evaluating our own distinctions between weakness and sin. Why is it important? Next question. Maybe that phone will go off again. Why is it important to know the difference then? In your life, why is it important for you to recognize when it, you're we're acting from weakness and when you're acting from sin? What do you think? I'll take two or three hands. Yeah. Yes, if it's rebellion, if it's sin, you have to know that so you can take the appropriate action, which is to repent and change. Perfect. Any other reasons? Yeah. So the point is that grace covers the blessed sisters are trying to get mics to all y'all. I'll repeat it if we don't get the mics there in time, because I know it's hard. They've got to run all over the room. Um, grace covers both. So in that sense, the, there is a panacea, and it is the atonement. Right? Thank you. Any other reasons why it's important to know the difference? Betsy. Perfect. 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 I love it. So in both cases, it is important. As, as I mentioned in the first comment, we have to know it's sin so we can act, take appropriate action and repent. If we assume, oh, this is just weakness, but we're actually in a state of rebellion against God, we are, by definition, damned. We are not moving forward, and the spirit won't be able to abide with us. We have to be able to get to the doctor and to get the remedy if we're in a state of rebellion. We have to lay down our arms. And if we don't realize or aren't willing to admit to ourselves that we have arms in our hands, we can never lay them down. But likewise, we have to realize when weakness is weakness, when we were acting from weakness and not from sin. <coughs> because otherwise, speaking of weakness, <coughs> does anyone have water? Somebody, if the water appears, that'd be great. If it doesn't, no worries. Because if we don't have recognized that it is weakness, then we will blame ourselves. We will live under a weight of guilt. We will feel sinful and cut off and incapable. It will weaken our, our faith in ourselves, which, as Joseph Smith mentioned in the lectures of faith, that was one of the three things that is required to have faith unto salvation, a, an actual knowledge that the course of life that we are pursuing is in accordance with God's will. If we feel that we are in a constant state of sin, we will, it will weaken that faith. And as was mentioned, the remedies are different. I will leave a question with you. We don't have time to discuss now. Why is it important to know the difference between weakness and sin in others as well? Are those consequences different? How do you teach differently? How do you parent differently? How do you respond differently? And it's not ours to judge but at least let us have room in our head for both. Quoting from Sister Ulrich, calling sin weakness can lead to failure to repent, a failure that is fatal to our souls, but calling weakness sin can also have devastating consequences, hopelessness, helplessness, undermine growth and learning, and compromise faith in Jesus Christ our Savior. Next question, how does God feel about weakness versus sin? Even looking at the slide, do you think God feels differently about the two of them? How does God feel about sin? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, we only have to read a few scriptures of their interaction, the interaction of Christ with the Pharisees in the New Testament, for example, among many others, to be very clear about how God feels about sin, about a state of rebellion. He doesn't feel good about it. 
thumbs down. In fact, it is always an immediate call to repentance, a call to return, or in Hebrews 2, to turn, to turn back, to turn and return to God. So sin always from God results in an immediate call, a call to repentance. He is, um, he cannot tolerate sin. I got the water for anybody on the podcast who's worried about me. God, here, the summation, God cannot tolerate sin in the least allowance. How does God feel about weakness then? Differently? Yes or no? Yes. What is God's response to weakness? Is it an immediate call to repentance? Condemnation? Not the least degree of allowance? Perfect. It gives us an opportunity to help us. It is a window to our souls. It is a window to our relationship with him, or it can be. And that is what this says. Let me get back. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. God, in response to weakness, my answer would be that God says things like, come unto me, be perfected in me, continue in patience until you are perfected. I will succor you, and many more. If God feels differently about sin from weakness, maybe you and I should too. But sometimes we conflate the two, and we feel about them the same, and this does hard things. As mentioned, the remedies for each are different. The remedy for sin, being sinful by choice, to use Sister Ulrich's words, is repentance, which includes faith, recognition, restitution, all those things, potentially, depending on the situation. Being weak by design, by contrast. The remedy is humility and faith. And we see that in either 12, 27. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. We'll see the rest of the remedy in a minute. Moving on for time. And my grace is sufficient, the next line. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. This goes back to the comment that was made. One of the things that weakness and sin do have in common, among so few, in fact, Sister Ulrich uh, asserts that weakness and sin are not similar, but weakness and strength are. Um, but one of the things that weakness and sin do have in common is that the remedy for each is found in the atonement of Jesus Christ. When in sin, and sinful by choice, we repent, it is God's, Christ's redeeming grace that saves us. Redeem meaning to purchase back, to buy back, to pay for. It is the sin that pays for the consequences and um, punishments of our sins and brings us to, to whole again, brings us out of the red, puts us back in the black, puts us even. S similarly, weak by design, the remedy is humility and faith. And the, the power that by which we are saved is enabling grace. You'll remember from the Bible dictionary, I think I have this one. One second. 
From the Bible Dictionary, under the entry of grace, it says this, and also, by the way, a favorite talk or a favorite subject, as Kelly shared a week ago, um, from Elder Bednar, um, from his talk, In the Strength of the Lord, among others. But the Bible Dictionary on grace, and Elder Bednar will say the same, says this, um, the main idea of the word is divine means of help or strength given through the bounteous mercy and love of Jesus Christ. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus made possible by his atoning sacrifice that mankind will be raised in immortality, every person receiving his body from the grave in a condition of everlasting life. It is likewise through the grace of the Lord that individuals, through faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ and repentance of their sins, receive strength and assistance to do good works that they otherwise, with their weaknesses, would not be able to maintain if left to their own means and in their own mortal state, I would add. This grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. So it is grace that saves us in both cases. It is Christ's atonement that covers it. And here in this line that we're looking at right now, Christ says that his grace is sufficient where, why is his grace sufficient to be for both redeeming for our sins and enabling for our weaknesses? Why is his grace sufficient? We turn with me to Alma chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 11 through 13. I'm going to start reading it while you turn there if you'd like to. Alma chapter 7. I want you to listen for why is Christ's grace sufficient. And it says, and he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. Did you just hear words we talked about earlier when we talked about the list of weaknesses? Going on, he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bounds of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, their weaknesses, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless, that great Book of Mormon word, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might know, take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. As you look back over those words, and we've read this is a, a well-known and well-quoted scripture in the Book of Mormon, but as you look over the words of all the things that Christ took upon him, how many of them have to do with, well, just note, how many have to do with sin? And I, by, I'm going to add death, physical death. And how many have to do, how many there are that talk about things that relate to human frailty, to weakness, pains? afflictions, temptations, infirmities. His grace is sufficient because he paid for it all. Because he didn't just pay for sin. He paid for everything. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, I believe it is. I love this scripture. It says... For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest, Christ, who can't understand our weaknesses. But we, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Does that make sense then? How Christ can be tempted in all points, human weakness, and yet without sin, he didn't act on it. 
He never rebelled. He never turned his back. There was never a shadow of turning, to use a scriptural phrase. And so even though he, like us, was tempted, it doesn't count for sin. And God and, and weakness, temptation, does not constitute sin. It does not, you can still live a perfect life as he did. Hopefully that, that makes sense. Um, a professor I once had quoted another, a member of another faith, I think a, a pastor or minister, but um, who once said this, and it, hopefully this is a perfect quote, if not it's close, quote, God has more mercy and grace than you and I have sins and weaknesses, I would add. And he understands them because he experienced them. We're going to skip for time, but the result of these two um, being saved by redeeming grace and enabling grace, the result of being saved by redeeming grace is justification, being clean. The result of enabling grace is learning and the acquisition of virtue or exaltation. But for time, we'll go on because we still have 13 more pages. Just kidding. I'm looking at the Stake Relief Society president who's fearing that I'm serious. Slightly serious. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me. Oh, I have to read this quote. Let me, this is a, finishing the, the prior point. Let me, this is Sister Ulrich. Let me re- reiterate this alternative premise. Sin and weakness are very different. They have very different origins and different consequences consequences, call for different remedies, evoke different responses from heaven, reside in different aspects of our being, and produce different effects. Sin can take us to hell. Weakness can take us to heaven. Now, for if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, our part. Our part is is summarized in these two things. Number one, humility. Um, I have a quote from President Cannon. Let me find it quickly. He said this, if you go to the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he will show you all your faults and all your weaknesses. He'll bring plainly before you wherein you have come short in doing his will. And when you see yourself in the light of that spirit, instead of being filled with pride, you will feel to abase yourselves and bring yourselves down in the very dust of humility. Your own unworthiness will be so plain before you that if pride should come into your heart at any time, you'll almost be shocked at it and will feel to put it away from you. Um, likewise, from True to the Faith, says this, to be humble is to recognize gratefully your dependence on the Lord. I love that definition of, a, of a humility. The recognition of a higher power and of our dependence on it, our dependence on him. To understand that you have constant need for his support. Humility is an acknowledgement that your talents and abilities are gifts from God. It is not a sign of weakness, timidity, or fear. It is an indication that you know where your true strength lies. And then this from John Ruskin, another favorite. I believe that the first test of a great man is his humility. I don't mean by humility, doubt of his power. But really great men have a curious feeling that greatness is not of them, but through them. And they see something divine in every other man and are endlessly, foolishly, incredibly merciful. So God says, if you see your weaknesses and recognize them as such, don't condemn yourself as if they're sin, but instead turn. Turn to me. Recognize. Humble yourself before me. Recognize in me the greater power. Recognize in me the greater authority. Recognize in me the source of your healing. And have faith in me. 
One of the best translations for the word um, faith is we talked about a few definitions a few weeks ago, but um, one of the great synonyms for faith is actually trust. Trust him. Trust him that he can fix you or help you. Trust him that, um, that he can make you more than you are. Trust in his power. Have faith. And of course, faith includes obeying because faith without works, as James said, is dead. So to have, be humble yourself. Recognize his power. Recognize your need for him. Have faith in him. Turn to him. That is how you overcome weakness. Notice what he does not say in this line. He doesn't say, when you see your weaknesses, wallow in them. He doesn't say, when you see your weaknesses, spend a lot of time thinking about them. Focus on them. Focus on what you should be doing. Focus on how you're going to try harder tomorrow and that that's going to fix you. That is not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, focus on me. Let's get another great quote so you don't think I'm making this up. Um, this is Elder Sill. One of the things that frightens me most as I go about little bit is to hear, how many, hear so many people talking weakness, failure, and sin. The most widespread disease in the world is the inferiority complex. And when we think inferiority, that is what we get. Another missionary described his problem by saying, I can't concentrate. And I said, well, what do you plan on doing about it? He said, there's nothing I can do. I just can't concentrate. One of our most unfortunate weaknesses is we sometimes think we are under sentence to remain forever as we presently are. Yet one of the most exciting ideas in life is the possibility of changing ourselves for the better. And then Elder Pace, Glenn Pace, too often we wallow in our weaknesses so much that we do not allow weak things to become strong. Our, free, our condition is frequently misdiagnosed as humility when really it is a lack of confidence. What is the difference between the two? To be humble is to recognize our underdependence of, upon the Lord. We are conscious of our strengths but do not exalt ourselves. We are conscious of our weaknesses but know that the Lord can use those weaknesses to bless our lives. And th through him, our weaknesses can become strengths. By contrast, to lack confidence is to have feelings of low self-worth. We are preoccupied with our weaknesses. We lack faith in the Lord's ability to use those weaknesses for our good. Again, his invitation to have faith that he can make good of these things. Light from dark, life from an empty tomb. We do not understand our inestimable worth in the eyes of God, nor do we appreciate our divine potential. But divine potential. Ironically, both pride and lack of self-confidence cause us to focus excessively on ourselves and deny the power of God in our lives. Dr. Thomas Harris made the following observation. Most people never fulfill their human promise of potential because they may remain perpetually helpless children overwhelmed by a sense of inferiority. It merely implies... Oh. It merely implies that he refused, oh, sorry, the feeling of being okay does not imply that a person has risen above all his faults and emotional problems. It merely implies that he refuses to be paralyzed by them. President Packer, one of his most famous quotes is the idea that true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior, that the study of doctrines of the gospel will change attitudes and behavior faster than a study of behavior will, will change behavior. That is, as you focus on Christ and his truths and his doctrines, that you are more likely to change by focusing on him than focusing on what you are doing wrong. Thus, Moroni, in two different places, one at the end of the very chapter that we are studying, Ether chapter 12, and again, the one I will read, um, at the end of his final words, says this, yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. 
and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then, then is his grace sufficient for you as you come unto him and love him and focus on him, that by his grace he may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are imperfect in Christ, ye shall no wise deny the power of God. At the end of Ether chapter 12, he invites the same. He says, verse 41, And now I would commend you to sing, seek this Jesus, of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost may, abi- may be and abide in you forever. It is in turning to him that our weaknesses become strength. We need his power. And that's where we end. Then will I make weak things become strong unto them. The last line was our part. This part is his. I will make weak things become strong unto them. It is by his power and his grace. We have to be humble. We have to recognize and be willing to see We have to recognize in him the power to heal us, to improve us, to exalt us, to perfect us. And we have to have the humility and faith to submit and obey and turn to him. But then it is up to him and our partnership with him, working with him to be saved by grace. How does God turn our weaknesses into strengths? How has he done it in your life? If you have children, this is your 30-second warning to go get them. How does God turn our weaknesses into strengths? Does he always, let me ask you this way, does he always take whatever you're doing wrong and make you really good at that thing? No. At least that is not my experience, and I can find no quote that says that that is 100% guaranteed. Does that ever happen? Yes. I would say yes. And I speak from my experience. Um, we don't have time for it, but there's a great, if you've, um, coming from, it's from How to Win Friends and Influence People, that great book by Dale Carnegie. It's a two-page um, talk about Lincoln. How Lincoln, when he was young, he would just attack people viciously. In fact, one time he didn't like this guy and he left letters lambasting this guy. He left it, just dropped it by the country road so somebody would find it. And eventually got back to him, the guy nearly killed him because he finally figured out who it was. It says at the last minute, their seconds interrupted and stopped the duel. We nearly lost Lincoln, right? Reminds me a little bit of Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. Nobody calls me chicken. Like, um, but yet, years later, when he is a um, president during the Civil War, he, in, at one point, crucial in the war, He instructs General Meade to attack in a certain spot. And what does General Meade do? He doesn't, whether for fear or whatever. He doesn't, and the opposing forces escape. And the war continues. This bloodiest war on American soil continues. Lincoln was furious. He knew the war could have been ended if he had only listened. So this man, who in his youth was prone to criticism, what did he do? Well, he authored a letter. He wrote to him, my dear general, etc., etc. You can't even know what, what awful things you have done. I'm in stress immeasurably. Just, again, lambast him. And what did Meade do when he read the letter? Well, we don't know, because he never received it. It was found among Lincoln's personal effects after his death. He never mailed the letter. A great example of a weakness 
that later became a tremendous strength against much, much bigger circumstances. I felt the same for myself. I hope you as well. I'll skip other examples for time. And we are, really are. We're, we're like three, five, we're really close. I'm not even going to say how long. Number two, we, could, um, we may continue with a weakness, but we may recognize related but not direct compensating strengths, perhaps compassion that we develop because of the weakness that we have struggled with. Empathy, faith, courage, creativity, ability to help others that struggle with the same thing, relatability, and ability to help. Helen Keller said, a simple childlike faith in a divine friend solves all the problems that come, on, come upon this earth. The surest way to meet them is to assume we are immortal and that we have a friend who slumbers not nor sleeps. And then she said this, I thank God for my handicaps, which were never taken away. For through them, I have found myself, my work, and my God. Another example I thought of this is her. Do you remember her? Stephanie Nielsen, who came and spoke at our stake. Tragically and awfully maimed in a plane crash. And yet the thousands of lives that she has impacted for good, despite the weakness never being fully healed, is extraordinary. So much more that could be said there, and I do not mean to speak for her, um, but I do see the good that has been done. And it has been done at a tremendous cost and a lot of pain. Finally, the third way I thought of that weakness is turned into strength is when weakness pushes us to our knees, makes us humble, and taps us into his strength. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, that my strength, quote, well, that God's strength is, is perfected in his weakness, in Paul's weakness. That it is our weakness that pushes us to the source of all strength, of perfect strength. For when I am weak, said Paul, then I am strong. In this sense, weakness becomes our blessings. Perhaps when Nephi says that curse is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh, Perhaps that curse is not so much a curse coming out of the sky, but rather the lack of tapping into the power of God, the missed opportunity of not turning to the source of all strength, an unlimited source of strength, instead of just wallowing in our own meager strengths and weaknesses. In what ways has the enabling power of the atonement transferred your weaknesses into strengths? And so we go back to that initial question. What are the most important lessons you've learned in life? And what are the most important personal changes you've experienced? I wonder if the context of those lessons and changes doesn't have a lot to do with your own weakness. This painting is called Sometimes the Spirit Touches Us Through Our Weakness. It is by James Christensen. And I love it. As an angel bends, comes down from heaven, and touches the every man, as James Christensen calls him, through his hump, through the window of his weakness, that we may recognize sin and repent immediately, that we may stop unnecessary shame over weakness that is not sin, that we may be humble and turn to God to let him help us to make our weaknesses strengths, that we have patience with ourselves and others over this process, trust in God, and find joy in looking forward to that perfect day of perfect strength. For when we are weak, then with him we are strong. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.